Matthew 18:15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Hebrews 3.13 But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by this deceitfulness of sin. Psalm 19, 12 through 14. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of every great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Testing, testing, am I causing problems? Is that me? That's me? Mr. Mike. Let's try that again with a different microphone. I have given my wife Leah permission to be suspicious of me. Suspicious sometimes of my answers, my actions, or my motivations. You know, one of the agreements that we have between us is that she has permission to be suspicious and I won't be offended. I'll try not to be offended by her questions. You see, I have the same agreement with the pastors that I meet with monthly for accountability. Pastor Paul Monroe of Owl's Head Baptist and Pastor Randall Thistle from Port Clyde Christian Church, we've agreed together that we will be suspicious of ourselves and of one another and not be offended by that suspicion. Now, the truth is these would all be utterly miserable relationships if we were suspicious at all times. So, but, and I don't think I've given reason to regularly be suspicious. But we all know people. We all know people who will tolerate no suspicion of them. No suspicion of their actions and no suspicion of their motivations. How could you think that? You know, how how could you say that about me? How how could you even wonder that about me? You, You just don't understand, or more specifically, you just don't understand me the way I do. Maybe you know one of these people. Maybe sometimes you are one of these people. 
I mean, if I was to ask your spouse or a coworker or a close friend, what might they say? You know, some of us are immediately offended when examination comes. Some of us are immediately offended when there's any suspicion, when actions are challenged or when words are scrutinized or when motivation is questioned. And some reject all suspicion uh, of their motivations. They believe that they're the best judges of their own character. They're the best interpreters of their own motivation. They're most knowledgeable about their own hearts. But church, are we? Am I the best judge of myself? Do I see myself most clearly? Do I actually understand myself most accurately? King David says no. King David says no. He says we should be suspicious of ourselves, of our motivations, and our hearts. As Annie read for us this morning from Psalm 19, that was composed by King David. We just examined this psalm together in our morning meditation on YouTube last Thursday morning. Psalm 19 is a beautiful psalm. It celebrates the revelation of God's glory, first through creation, everything that he's made, and then it celebrates God's revelation of his glory through his word. And David says, having witnessed your glory, God, through your creation and your word, having seen your perfection and your holiness and your beauty, he's utterly overwhelmed by it. It it kind of reminds me of what happened to the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah was in the temple, and he had a vision of the Lord high and lifted up. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, he says, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, to be so exposed to the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the purity of the Lord, Isaiah finds himself exposed as unclean, as sinful as living amongst an unclean people. The Lord's glory exposed his uncleanliness and his sinfulness. It before went unnoticed and unacknowledged until it came into the light of God's glory. You know, I read about a carpet cleaning business, and this carpet cleaning business offered a special service to people for removing pet urine odors. But the problem was not everyone believed they needed the service. So what they would do is they would actually go to a potential customer's home and to show them their need, they'd bring them into the room, darken the room as best they could, and then turn on a powerful black light. And the black light exposed the urine crystals, and they glowed brightly. And the homeowners were often horrified because every single drop and dribble was exposed, often not only on the carpet, but on the walls, the drapes, the furniture, and sometimes even the lampshades. Now, the demonstration didn't make any stains appear that weren't there before. The offense had been there the whole time, but it was invisible. It was unnoticed and it was unacknowledged. And until the light came, it wasn't exposed. And that's what happened to the prophet Isaiah. And that's also what happened to King David in Psalm 19. The glory and the purity of the Lord, as he saw it in creation and in his word, exposed him. It exposed him, and the offenses that David saw had been there the whole time, but they'd been invisible. They were unnoticed and unacknowledged. And so David prays a prayer of confession at the end of Psalm 19, which is what Annie read for us. Psalm 19, verse 12. Who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults? 
You know, Pastor John Piper, looking at this, he said, what David means when he says who can discern his errors is who can get to the bottom of his own sinning. Who can fathom the tangled web of self-deceit? I think that's a great question. Who can? Who can discern their errors? Who can get to the bottom of it? Who can understand all of the self-deceit and the motivations? Who can understand? David says we're all like those pet owners. We truly can't see the problem without help. We can't see the problem without help. And so David prays to be declared innocent from hidden sins. Now, he's not talking about sins that he's hiding from somebody else. David's not talking about sins that he knows about and he's just keeping concealed from other people. What he's talking about is sins that he himself is blind to. He's saying, God, like like those, those pet stains, there are things that are hidden to me. I can't even get to the bottom of it. I can't get to the bottom of my own sinning. I can't understand it. Who can untangle it all? But there's a problem down there. God, there are hidden sins, and and I'm blind to it. You know, David is confessing we don't see the problem often. You know, often the problem with us is that maybe at one time we saw a problem, but having lived with the problem so long, we've become used to it and blind to it. Or, Or maybe we've reached a point where there was a problem once and we felt it, but we no longer feel it anymore. Or maybe we've engaged in a sinful pattern of thought or behavior for so long, it's just become habitual, it's become automatic, not not even intentional, just arises unbidden. And as humans, we have this uncanny ability. Friends, we are amazing at minimizing, rationalizing, and justifying our behavior. And the longer we do it, the more hidden our sin becomes to us. And that is why David confesses and what he prays against. He says, I've got to be suspicious of myself, of my motivations, of my heart intentions, because there lie things hidden inside that I can't even get to the bottom of, but need to be exposed. You know, interestingly, Psalm 36 is also a psalm of David. Psalm 36. And in that psalm, David offers an explanation of our uncanny ability to minimize, rationalize, and justify our sin so it becomes hidden to us. He writes in Psalm 36, verse 2, that the wicked flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. And the Hebrew word for flatters literally means to be smooth. David warns, he says, we're all prone to smooth over those rough edges, aren't we? Aren't we all really good at smooth-talking our way out of feeling bad about those little indiscretions? You know, those character flaws, those, those minor sins? We smooth over and we minimize our behavior. Well, it isn't that bad. I mean, everybody does this, or, or God doesn't sweat the small things. We flatter ourselves in our own eyes. We rationalize and justify. Well, my motivation was actually quite noble. Or, or I had good reason for acting that way. Or I was justified after all that I've done. Or anyone who's been through what I went through would have done exactly the same thing. And we flatter ourselves. And we smooth over all those rough edges. All those little indiscretions. And as the psalmist David says, the more we flatter ourselves, the more we rationalize, minimize, and justify, the smoother we become. And most dangerously, the less we detect find out 
and hate our sin. We become blind to it. It becomes hidden to us. So church, we're warned we should be suspicious of ourselves because we are all smooth talkers. We are all skilled self-swindlers. You know, my pastor's fellowship group, we read a book together two years ago called Dangerous Calling, confronting the unique challenges of pastoral ministry by Ted Tripp, or Paul Tripp, that is. And it was a horrible book to read. It was a horrible book to read because there were parts of it that were like that black light shining on our hearts and our lives, exposing hidden sins and all those things that we wanted to smooth over. The the book was used to mercilessly show us ways that we'd rationalized and minimized and justified to the point that we were no longer seeing sin as sinful. You see, Paul Tripp warns not only pastors, but he warns all of us, and he says, every person still living with sin inside is a very skilled self-swindler. If you still have sin living inside you, which you do, you're a very skilled self-swindler. Tripp explored this saying, sin's deceptive, and think about who it deceives first. If sin is deceptive, who do you think it deceives first? I have no difficulty recognizing the sin of people around me, but I can be quite unprepared when my sin is pointed out. Sin deceives 10 out of 10 people reading this book, he writes. And I would say it deceives 10 out of 10 people sitting in this room or watching this live stream. But spiritually blind people are not only blind, they're blind to their own blindness. They're blind, but they think they see so well. So the spiritually blind person walks around with the delusion that no one has a more accurate view of him than he does. Friends, we are skilled self-swindlers. We are smooth talkers. We're blind to our blindness. So like King David... We need to cry out, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Because who can discern his or her errors? They're so often hidden from us. And you know what that means? It means we need help. So as we said last week, if we're all prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, we need one another. Friends, the church, the church is God's solution to our wandering, to our blindness, to our self-deception. You see, the body of Christ is an instrument of seeing because we are all skilled self-swindlers, smooth talkers, blind to our blindness. So God, in his grace, gave us one another, and he's placed us in the body of Christ. That's why, like we talked about last week, the first most repeated one another command in the New Testament is love one another. The second most repeated one another command is admonish or exhort or rebuke one another. Because we need it. Because we need one another. Because we are blind to our blindness. Because And the longer, friends, the longer that we are deceived, the more hardened we become. The longer we're deceived by sin, the more hardened against seeing or turning from it do we become. That's why the author of Hebrews offered us the warning that Annie read for us today. Hebrews 3.13, But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. Why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Church, there's that command, exhort, admonish 
rebuke one another and do it as often as necessary because we are quickly hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What was once a big deal no longer is so. What once bothered you now goes unnoticed. What was once optional has become a need. What was once conscious has now become unconscious. What was once a choice has become automatic. What was once a compromise has become a lifestyle. Sin is deceitful. And the longer we rationalize, justify, and minimize, we quickly become hardened in sinful ways, beliefs, attitudes, and practices. And the greatest danger, church, is that we are blind to our own blindness. And God's solution in his grace is that he's given us one another. He's given us with the gift of one another. The church is God's answer to the deceptive and hardening nature of sin. And so it is last week we began to talk about church discipline. And we noted the vast majority of what would technically be called discipline is actually accomplished interpersonally. It's just between you and me. In Matthew 18, we heard Jesus say, if I perceive a brother or sister in Christ to sin against me personally, or if I believe that someone has sinned or fallen into a sinful pattern, then as Jesus taught in Matthew 18:15, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between him and you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So as we said last week, you should go face to face. Don't let media mediate it. Go face to face. Keep the circle small. No soliciting opinions or gossipy prayer requests. Never assume. Always start by seeking to understand. Speak the truth in a way that will love your sister home. Never go to win an argument, but go to win your brother. And if the sin is against you, it's got to be forgiven. You've got to let it go. Jesus says, go. And church, if we practiced and learned how to do this well, I feel like it would clear up 99% of our misunderstandings, annoyances, conflicts, irritations, and aggravations. If we learned how to do what Jesus commands in that verse. But the question we're considering today is, what happens when that doesn't work? What happens when a person is approached and seems to have become hardened in their sin? and seems to become blind to their blindness. What happens when sin remains, when it appears that the sin remains? You know, this week, 28 days before the meeting is required by our bylaws, we emailed you the exact language that's being proposed for adoption at the December business meeting. And so some of you may have already read the language that's being proposed. I want to read a a piece of it this morning. It says... Formal church discipline involving the church leadership only becomes necessary when informal discipline, such as one-on-one instruction, personal appeals, have failed to produce repentance, and a member persists in an obvious and persistent pattern of sin in his or her life. Sins about which an offender is grieved and repentant when confronted do not, do not necessitate formal discipline. Church, I want you to hear this. The issue is not that we have sin in our lives. The issue is when we don't have repentance in our lives. The issue is not that we have sin in our lives. The issue is when we do not have repentance in our lives. Now, don't hear me saying that sin's no big deal, but rather, as explained in the proposed language, and I quote, until Christ returns or calls us home, we will all struggle against sin. As such, the main issue considered in church discipline is not the presence of sin, 
but the absence of repentance. The gospel is that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can and should live honestly by the Spirit's power, daily confessing and repenting of sin, then turning to Christ in ever-increasing obedience. Church, the issue is not the presence of sin. The issue is the absence of repentance. As I heard one theologian put it, the point of the Christian life is not to sin less, but to repent more. His point in making that statement was that the Christian life is not about sin management, but deeper and deeper repentance. Sin can't be managed. Sin needs to be repented of. It needs to be repented of. And church of the gospel, the good news is that while sin can't be minimized or managed, we can't become good people. The gospel of grace is that we have a good and gracious Father to whom we might always run. The good news is that the work of Jesus Christ is that in which we rest. The good news is we have the Holy Spirit who leads us to repentance and breaks the power of sin in our lives. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sits the prisoner free. That's what we sang. And church, that's what we believe. That's the gospel. The Christian life is a life of ongoing repentance, turning more and more readily and fully to God from our sin, not denying it, not minimizing it, not rationalizing it, not justifying it, but confessing my sin. Confessing that my sin is much worse and more extensive and more prevalent and it goes deeper than I could ever imagine. Who can even discern his errors? But the good news, church, is that God's grace goes deeper still. I can't discern or perceive all of the sin and error in my life. But the good news is that God's grace is deeper than any sin. His power is greater than I could ever imagine. So I can confess my need. I can repent and return to him no matter what and find forgiveness and freedom. Church, that's our hope. It's our only hope. The question is, what if I won't, though? What if I refuse to confess and repent from my sin? What if I remain blind and hard, minimizing, rationalizing, and justifying, just smoothing it over? It's not that bad. You've blown it out of proportion. You just don't understand me the way I do. What if someone denies or refuses to confess and repent when a concern is brought interpersonally? And Jesus gives instructions in Matthew 18:16. He says, If this brother or sister does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, only when personal efforts just between you and me have failed should the circle be widened and a third party brought in. You know, interestingly, the, the Bruderhof Christian community, which started in Germany, is founded on one written rule. This community lives together around one written rule. No law but love. No law but love. However, the founder of the community wrote about the difficulty of applying this one rule to community life. And this is what he said. He said, an honest word, openly spoken and directly spoken, deepens friendship and won't be resented. It's only when two people do not come to an agreement quickly that it's necessary to draw on a third person whom both of them trust. In this way, they can be led to a solution that unites them on the highest and deepest levels. You see, friends, when there remains a disagreement about what happened 
or about the sinfulness of what happened, or whether this is an issue of sin or merely an issue of opinion, bring in a third person whom they both trust. I mean, Jesus is following the biblical precedent found in Deuteronomy 19.15, which says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now notice what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying gather people to your side, put people in your corner. Notice he's not saying gang up on someone. He's saying you want somebody who both parties trust and who will listen, who will help facilitate communication, who will help bring understanding and ultimately might serve in the end as a witness, a witness to the attitude and the actions of both parties in the midst of their conflict, someone who help might discern sin issues versus opinion issues, someone who might encourage reconciliation, someone who might correct when one party comes with the right argument but the wrong attitude, speaking the truth in love, but, or speaking the truth but maybe not in love. Sometimes a third party is all that's needed to help overcome the hardness and the blindness of sin. And like we said last week, to love the wanderer home. And that's what we pray happens. However, If this is a matter of genuine sin, and if the person confronted still refuses to confess and repent, Deuteronomy says then you need the testimony of two or three witnesses to establish the truth. So, but what if the intervention of this witness or witnesses still doesn't convince the wanderer of the sinfulness of his actions or the sinful character of her attitudes? Jesus continues in Matthew 18, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, interestingly, this is one of only two times the word church is used in the Gospels. In the Gospels, the word church, which is the Greek word ekklesia, is only used twice. Once here, and once in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus says to Peter, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the church, the ecclesia, literally the called out ones, or the local assembly of Christians, they were a called out community. They were called apart. And Jesus' point is, if one refuses to recognize, confess, and repent of sin, then it's impossible for that person to be reconciled to God or back into the ecclesia, the community. Because church, grace is always greater And every sin that's confessed and repented of can be and will be covered by grace. And we can be reconciled to God and his people. But continuing in sin that refuses to be confessed, sin to which we cling and of which we refuse to repent, separates us from God and from his people. Unrepentance is a refusal of the grace that stands ready to always forgive and reconcile. So again, the issue is not the presence of sin in someone's life, but the absence of repentance. Because you and I will struggle. Every one of us will struggle with sin until Jesus returns. The question is, have we become blind to and hardened in our sin? When pointed out, do we confess it? When when we acknowledge it, do we turn from that sin? Because a person who refuses to repent stands in denial of the grace of Christ which church is the only thing, the only thing that can forgive and reconcile. And so Jesus says this person has brought separation upon herself, failing to acknowledge that sin makes reconciliation impossible. 
And as such, Jesus says, she's to be treated as one outside of the ecclesia, outside of the church community. Let her be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And let's understand, church, when Jesus says this, he's not being unduly harsh. Because you might remember Jesus had a bit of a reputation in his day. Do you remember that reputation? He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Treating them as a pagan or a tax collector means to recognize simply that our relationship with this person has fundamentally changed. If the church is God's embassy to the world, it is to say the embassy is no longer able to verify citizenship. It's to say the church cannot in good conscience renew her passport and stand behind her profession before a watching world if there's no repentance. Because church, ongoing repentance, not sinlessness, is the mark of a kingdom citizen. Ongoing repentance, not sinlessness, is the mark of one who belongs to Christ. So we're to pray for him and reach out to him with the same love and compassion with which we would show to pagans and tax collectors, but all in the hope that there might eventually be repentance, reconciliation to God, and reconciliation to the community. But until that time, Jesus says, the relationship is fundamentally changed. Now you might ask, on what authority? Really, on what authority, Adam, can you even say this? Could the church act in these matters? What do you mean that it's like an embassy vouching for or validating kingdom citizenship of its members? How can you say that? Well, friends, the two times that the word ecclesia or church is used in the Gospels, it's both times used in conjunction with the idea that the church community is a visual representation of the presence and authority of Jesus on earth. It's Jesus, an embassy of Jesus' kingdom. Both times the word ecclesia is used in the Gospels, it's from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself, giving authority to his church. In Matthew 16, just after Jesus tells Peter he's going to build his ecclesia on Peter's confession, he says in Matthew 16, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And we heard Jesus use this same language in today's passage, Matthew 18, 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Both of these passages emphasize that the church is God's, the, the, the church is made up of God's ambassadors to this world, and the church is his embassy, certifying, binding, and loosing those ambassadors. The church is a tangible witness of God's presence acting with his authority. So to be reconciled to the ecclesia is a visible sign of standing reconciled to God, and standing unreconciled to the community is a visible sign of standing separated from God. And church, these are terrible terrible weighty matters and even standing here and preaching this these are things not to be taken lightly and the good news is as such jesus promises his presence as we face such situations matthew 18 verses 19 through 20 jesus concludes saying i say to you if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask it'll be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name there i am among them so the bad news is we find that our favorite verse that we use whenever we have a small gathering, a prayer meeting where two or three are gathered, that's not about prayer meeting. It's actually about church discipline. 
But Jesus' point is that every matter is to be established by two or three witnesses, and when it does, the presence of Jesus is there leading and guiding, informing and inspiring. He promises his presence and his power to the church with this staggering authority of binding and loosing, this awesome responsibility of reconciling in the power of the Spirit. Because church, reconciliation is the most awesome and visible and tangible witness to the world of the reality and presence of the power of God. Our unity and the power and authority to reconcile with one another and restore the erring brother back to the ecclesia is the greatest witness we have as ambassadors of Christ. The authority to reconcile a straying sheep to the rest of the flock, the authority to declare forgiven in the name of Jesus, these things serve as a visible, tangible sign of Jesus' promise. Where two or three are gathered, there I am. Christ is among his church when such fearsome and awesome responsibility is undertaken never to be taken lightly, never to be neglected at the peril of our walk with the Lord or our witness before the world. And church, at this point, let's take a moment to talk about the elephant in the room. Many here this morning and participating in the live stream are aware that a little over a year ago we faced a church discipline issue issue here. So let me make something clear. These proposed changes in this sermon today are not a defense of the past, but a reference for the future. My goal in preaching this sermon, our goal in putting forward these proposed changes are not to look back, but to look forward. The past cannot be changed, but through that experience we learned much. And one of the things that we learned was that our Constitution did not outline clearly an agreed-upon process of biblical discipline. Moreover, we learned that the leadership had failed to teach our congregation on this subject of church discipline. Thus, there was confusion, there was disagreement, there was strife, there was anger, and to this day, there is still some battling against bitterness and healing from distrust. And church, I grieve that. Hindsight is twenty twenty. And there is much we learned and much that we desire to do better in the future. Thus the proposed changes to the bylaws. Thus this sermon talking about a topic that none of us want to talk about. These proposed changes in the sermon today are not a defense of the past, but we are looking forward to the future. Because church, sometime, sometime in the future, we will find ourselves in a situation again where one has been so hardened by sin and become so blind to his or her blindness that such serious action is necessary. And church, I pray and I labor against that day, but I want us to be prepared for it. I want us to be prepared for it. And the best way to prevent such a day from coming upon us is to practice informal church discipline like we discussed last week just between you and me, interpersonally studying and speaking to one another the word of God, as Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, speak the word of God for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training one another in righteousness. The best way to prevent such a day of serious action from coming upon us is to be suspicious of yourself, to give permission to a few trusted people to be suspicious of you, questioning, questioning and challenging you as well. For King David, who also wrote Psalm 141, verse 5 says, Let a righteous man strike me. It's a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It's oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. 
So church, who have you given such permission and kindness to strike you and to strike at your pride? Who have you given such permission to be suspicious of you, to question you, to dive down to the heart of the issue? Because church, who can discern his errors? None of us. None of us alone. And that's why God has given us the gift of his church. The question is, will we accept this sometimes unwelcomed gift? Let's pray. Father, these, these are heavy things we discussed today. And so we commit this all to you. Where I have erred in anything I said, I pray, Father, that you would point it out. I pray that what is good and true would be remembered. I pray what is in error would be forgotten. And I pray that your spirit would lead us all into greater holiness. That your spirit would lead us all to follow you in word and in deed and in love. That, Father, where we have been hardened by our sin, deceived by it and blinded to it, that, Father, you would grant us repentance and forgiveness by the power and the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name.